It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and I have a guest with me today. And Robin, are you on the line? I am. Okay, great. This is Robin Tracy. She's a clinical mental health counselor who practices feminist multicultural therapy. And that's what our show is about today, feminist multicultural therapy. You know, Robin, sometimes... I get confused. I think there are so many different kinds of therapy and there are so many things that we seek therapy for. Um, And now, uh, quite honestly, I've never heard of feminist multicultural therapy. How does this differentiate from any other kind of therapy? Um, I think in a lot of ways, nowadays, there's not a huge difference in that when feminist multicultural therapy was begun um, back in the 70s, it sprang out of kind of the um, the women's movement and self-help and encounter groups. And at the time, therapy was a very hierarchical experience. Um, it, wait, wait a minute. Um, it was based in metal. Um, one person above the other. So therapist as expert and client as person seeking expert help. Um, So kind of the model was based on um, kind of a medical model, came out of psychiatry and was similar to the way um, doctors treated patients um, in that era. So um, they were the expert, you are the lowly lowly person who requires the expert's help. And so you're, you're put in your place before you even walk through the door. Exactly. Um, and oftentimes the client's expectation was one of, you know, this person knows more than me and I need to listen to or do whatever they say. Um, and mm-hmm. therapy often reinforced that belief system. Um, it also tended to reinforce um, sexist um, belief systems and ways of being. Uh, therapists were often male, um, especially um, in psychiatry, and that hierarchy reinforced gender roles and biases. So women and people of color, and particularly women of color, found themselves um, in, again, kind of a one-down position in therapy and found themselves not feeling understood or respected or truly heard. And so um, encounter groups sprang up where women helped each other um, and dealt with issues um, of their lives with other people who knew what their lives were like. And so feminist multicultural therapy took that example and said, you know, let's equalize power in the relationship and um, let's take into account the cultural background of our client, the gender background of our client, um, race, ethnicity, religious belief, all those kinds of things, which I think people nowadays are like, well, that's just therapy. Well, that's therapy now because of the feminist movement. Um, That's what helped change the face of therapy and the relationship between therapists and clients. Yeah, but I have to admit, I mean, I have talked with therapists. I haven't particularly seen or or professionally any therapist, but I have talked with uh, uh, therapists at professional organizations, uh, you know, that kind of thing, who still have that... um, sense that they have the knowledge, they have the experience, they have the wider scope, and they are there to help and impart knowledge. And and I've actually heard this phrase, and that if someone who comes to them, who seeks their help, doesn't follow their advice, then they are an unworthy patient. Mm -hmm. And feminist therapy, um, again, kind of continues to 
um, to challenge that model that um, we start with the assumption that clients know themselves better than we'll ever be able to know them and uh, that we are in this together. I bring knowledge and experience and expertise to the table that the client may not yet have and the client brings knowledge and expertise to the table that I may not have. So we're in um, a partnership to to solve or help um, help clients move towards resolution of what brought them into therapy. So, mm-hmm. and definitely, you know, there are still plenty of therapists who work in a hierarchical fashion. Um, one of the tenets of feminist therapy is what we call doing our own work. So, always looking um, outside the counseling room at what are my implicit biases, what are maybe biases that I carry around that I'm not aware of, and how, you know, how do I work to become more aware of those so that they don't invade upon my work with clients? Um, What are my explicit biases, um, and how do I make sure that those don't intrude upon my work with clients? Um, And if if they do, if we all have biases, and if those things arise in a counseling session, being honest with a client, you know, I, I'm struggling with this issue, and I am I'm doing everything that I can to be neutral and to present in a way or work with you, you know, on this issue, and yet, you know, I struggle with this issue myself. So it, that open communication with a client um, is part of a feminist model. Whereas I think a lot of therapists, if they found themselves conflicted on something or um, found themselves in the throes of a bias with a client, their efforts would be to hide that or make it as you know as minimal and as least visible to the client as possible. Um, whereas I'm going to strive number one to not like not put that on the client as something that they need to deal with, but to help them understand that, you know, in my humanity, this is something that I struggle with and that I am going to do everything that I can to make sure that doesn't impact the work that I do with them. And yet, um, please tell me or, you know, help me um, notice if that, if I'm not succeeding in that, because I don't want, you know, my stuff to transfer to you. Yeah. Um, doing our own work. So when I first started questioning about what is feminist psychology, um, I was thinking of it, um, and I'm trying to frame this question correctly. I was thinking of it mm-hmm. in almost a hierarchical model, in, it, in the question in and of itself. In other words, you have mm-hmm. therapy. What is it about what you impart that is done in a feminist way or a feminist manner or something like that? But as you're talking about it, I'm realizing that it's it's more of a collaboration. This feminist theory is more Mm -hmm. of a collaboration than um, and uh, just imparting some information or some strategies to someone. Am I misinterpreting that? Exactly. No, no, that's exactly correct. That it's a, a concept of we're in this together, and you know I bring things to the table, and you bring things to the table, and you know hopefully um, through that combination we have what you need to address what you've come to therapy for. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the absolutely correct. Uh, that I see with that is because I I think that that follows kind of a. Uh, a female way of thinking, because let's face it, there are differences uh, in the way some sometimes, not always, but there are differences uh, that you can generalize about uh, in the ways that men and women think and and, and process information. Mm-hmm. And um, and it seems to me that women tend to um, collaborate more in in solve this mm-hmm. problem. And yes, you can call yes. me, you can email me, that's fine, you can disagree with me. That's that's how I'm seeing that it that that it that it is. Um so this seems feminist psychology seems to be a natural way to work with women. Women hash things out, women talk about things, women um uh, figure it out together. Um but mm-hmm. is that an approach that doesn't work with men as well? I think um, I think it depends. As you were describing that, 
that the the approach is very female. First of all, yes, (laughs) it's feminist. So it came out of women. um, And, um, and I would say probably most practitioners of feminist therapy are women. Um, At the same time, there are men as well. Um, In some ways, more what comes to my mind rather than men is cultural differences. Um, Some cultures look at therapy like a medical relationship. Um, So just like when they go to their doctor, they expect their doctor to be able to, you know, do things that they can't do to provide um, diagnosis, treatment, and to be very um, guiding in the process, um, not you know, relying on the client for information to inform decisions that then come from the doctor. Um, so um, some people from some cultures also come to therapy in that way. Um, in my personal experience, I've had some Latino clients um, come from that perspective and some clients um, whose um, origins were from India um, come from that perspective. Um, one of like, you are the expert. And so trying to take a more collaborative approach with those clients can be a real um, turn off to them. It can be, it can come across to them as if, well, I came to you for help and you don't know how to help me. I'm going to go find someone who does. So, you know, part of the kind of the multicultural piece in feminist multicultural therapy is being aware and sensitive to like, what does my client need? Um, I have, you brought up nails. I have a young um, a young man in his teens, uh, and I, you know, approach things very much in kind of a client-guided way. And he met with me and said, "I need more structure. <laughs> like I need you to be guiding therapy um, and less relying on uh, on me to say, you know, here's the direction I want to head." Um, and so, um, number one, that does put me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> That's not um, how I'm most comfortable doing therapy Um, and yet I'm the therapist he's coming to me for help and saying this is what I need from you I um, you know I I like the fact that you don't try and be above me and yet I need um, I need you to kind of take the reins more Um, so that for me as a therapist that's been one of my most challenging um, is when a client comes to me and says you know I need I need more, um, more authority, more guidance um, from you. Um, like I want you to structure sessions and to say, here's what we're going to talk about today um, and give me solutions. And, you know, then that becomes a discussion of, you know, how can, how can we do that? Because, you know, I want to meet your needs and, you know, I am not the type of therapist that, you know, can just take charge in a session and say, okay, here's what we're doing and go do this and come back and report to me. <laughs> so, um, cause that's mm-hmm. not a natural way to do who I am. I mean, one, one of the things that we need, all need to do when we uh, seek therapy is to make sure that the style of the therapist and the expertise of the therapist matches our needs. Right. That therapeutic match is absolutely vital. Um, research that's been done over the years on all the different types of therapy that's out there, um, what it all boils down to is the relationship. So um, you can use technically whatever interventions as a therapist work for you. And therapists do. You know, we have our specialties in dialectical behavior therapy or cognitive behavior therapy or existentialism or whatever. Um, And all of those things have to happen in the context of a trust, trusting relationship between the client and me. So that's what makes people change. People change in the context of relationship. So if we don't click, if we don't match, then yeah, you're way, you're going to get way better help from someone that you click with and you feel like really gets you and understands you Um, and, you know, sessions flow from there. So yeah. And and I think that that's the a challenge, I think, because most of us seek therapy when we're in maybe not a crisis situation, but certainly not in a, a comfortable, uh, things are wonderful and I'm thinking clearly uh, situation. Right. So if, right. if it's up to us to seek out, interview, find the person who fits us, um, you know, that 
could result in, you know, I, I could do this, you know, if, if things were better, but if things were better, I wouldn't need the therapist. Um, so how does right. that, right. how does that work? Um, if, if you're labeled a feminist multicultural therapist, then if I'm knowledgeable and if I've listened to the show, then I know that, you, <laughs> that, means that it has something to do with your approach. But how do other people know this? How do you know this if you haven't had the benefit of hearing your interview? Mm-hmm. Um, in my experience, there are few clients who, to whom it matters. Um, I think um, kind of like you said, clients are generally, they're looking for somebody with whom they click and they feel like they can help them. And they're looking for that person at a time when they are more vulnerable than they normally would be. Um, Speaking from my own experience, when I have sought therapy in the past, um, there was a point at which I was in kind of that crisis spot. Um, I was experiencing depression, and I really need someone right away. Um, And, you know, the first person that could get me in was the match, (laughs) because they could get me in. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, I I got a little bit from that relationship, um, but it wasn't a match. And, you know, kind of over time, I went through probably four therapists um, until I found one that was like, okay, this is the person who gets me and, you know, with whom I can really do the deeper work. Um, All the other four helped me, you know, through other spots, you know, like the, the one when I was really depressed. I think I only saw that person twice. They recommended I get medication. I was like, yes, that is indeed what I need right now. Um, I got on medication, and then that gave me some kind of emotional wiggle room um, to then go seek someone else who was maybe a better match. And I, I was in grad school at the time and strongly identifying as you know a feminist therapist in the making, and so I was I was seeking feminist therapy for my own needs. And I I remember specifically asking for that in one therapist um, and her response being, well, you don't want someone who's too close to who you are and how you are. I'm just like, yes, but I do know what I'm looking for and that's not it. So, um, so it was frustrating to have someone kind of try and fit themselves to what I needed rather than listen to me, um, and say, oh, I hear that you're looking for something very specific, and I don't know, you know, I'm not that specific thing. Maybe there are other ways that we can match up. Um, But needless to say, I didn't end up staying with that person. Um, So um, so even as a person who was embedded in the feminist therapy community, I had a hard time finding someone who identified in that way. Um, When I was in grad school, a lot of the discussions in my program centered around when you leave here and when you leave school and you go out and practice in the community, when you're interviewing for jobs and when you're, um, you know, presenting yourself to clients, will you use the F word? (laughs) Will you say I am feminist or will you not? Um, Because there are some pretty big biases in our culture against that word. Um, And, you know, people were pretty split on um, whether they would identify in that way openly or not. I'll call you back. Oh. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. We did not get your message, either because you were not speaking or because of a bad connection. To disconnect, press 1. To record your message, press Hello. 2. I don't know what's happening with my phone. Are Hello? you still there? To disconnect, press 1. To record your message, press 2. Are you still there? To disconnect, press 1. To record your message, press 2. Sorry you were having trouble. Please try again later. Goodbye. Hello. No. Robin, are you there? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what okay. happened I there. Don't... Sorry. I I got an incoming call. I sent it to voicemail, and then all I could hear was my voicemail. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, um, let's continue. I can just edit that chunk out, <laughs> and we'll go from there. Um, so we were talking about how um, you select a therapist and how you um, – Yeah, how you kind of determine whether someone's a match and whether a feminist therapist might be a match for you. Um, so again, I, I think there are a lot of people out there practicing um, something that is either very close to or actually is uh, feminist therapy who may not um, openly identify in that way. Like you may not find that on their Psychology Today profile or um you know, in the information that you get from your insurance company or something like that. Um, So I think for me, feminist therapy is such a match to who I am as a person um, that it is kind of a core piece of my identity. So for me, identifying in that way helps me to bring clients to me who will probably be a good match for who I am as a person and how I practice as a therapist um, and um, and provides clients that information if they want it. So, yeah. so for example, I'm match, a Yeah, that match that you talk about is really significant. It's re- it really makes a difference on whether therapy is going to be yeah. accepted or useful. It's a huge difference. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what kind of clients do you get? What kind of clients are seeking out a feminist multicultural therapist? Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know that I've had anyone come to me and say, I was looking for a feminist therapist and I found you. (laughs) Um, Uh I have had a lot of people say, you know, person X or person Y recommended you to me um, as someone that they thought, you know, I would get along with well or that you could really meet my needs or you specialize in my issue, that type of thing. Um, And I have gotten a number of referrals. Um, Our, the Rape Recovery Center here in Salt Lake operates on a feminist model. Um, So, Number one, the therapists there, many of them identify as feminist multicultural therapists, and the organization is run um, on principles that match um, feminist principles, so collaboration, um, reducing of hierarchy, things like that. Um, And recently, I've started to get referrals from that agency, and some of those people do come and say, you know, someone at the Rape Recovery Center referred me to you because they felt like you were going to be as close to the way they practice as they, you know, as I could find outside of that agency. Um, So I think, you know, as maybe as the information disseminates that that's how I practice, then then that would send certain people my way. Um, I've also had not a a large number by any means, but a few clients here and there um, specifically ask, you know, what is feminist therapy? And you know, how might that help me and what might that mean in our therapy together? Um, I I do put it as a part of like how I will help somebody in their treatment plan. So when we go over the treatment plan, I say, you know, one of the one of the ways that um, I'll help you, you know, we'll, we'll maybe do some um, psychoeducation or um, I'll use dialectical behavior therapy and the theoretical orientation from which I practice is feminist multicultural and kind of the short blurb I give them about that is that that means that I look at clients and the situations that they bring to therapy in the context of the larger culture. How does culture and the world around you impact you and how do you in turn impact it? And then the biases and um, um, oppressions and privileges that act upon you. Um, that's kind of my little standard blurb. Um, I would say <laughs> one out of a hundred clients ask for more information <laughs> based on that. Mm-hmm. So, 
Well, you know, you know, I have to tell you, Robin. I, you know, in trying to figure out, you know, new cell phones and new technology, et cetera, et cetera, um, I often struggle, as many people my age do. And uh, my daughter gave me a, an Android phone a couple of years ago, and and I was saying, how do you do this? She goes this way, and I said, how do you do this? She goes, just like this. And about the fourth time, I said, how do you do this? She said, Mom. Just go on Google and type in how do I do X, Y, Z, and Google will tell you how. So this is very good advice. This is very good advice. And so Mm -hmm. I just type in my Mm -hmm. question, and guess what? I type in feminist therapy, and I find this uh, a lot Mm -hmm. of information. And one of the the first ones that I went to was Psychology Today, because most people are familiar with that popular, you know, um, uh, publication. It's Mm -hmm. certainly not a peer-reviewed or, uh, magazine, but it, it's one that uh, many people read, and, and it's uh, uh, at, a, at a certain professional level. So on Psychology Today, it says, um, feminist therapy is an integrative approach to psychotherapy that focuses on gender and the particular challenges and stressors that women face as a result of bias, stereotyping, oppression, discrimination, and other factors that threaten mental health. You know, that sentence stuck with me because I thought, wait a minute, all this oppression and discrimination and stereotyping, those things can threaten my mental health. And I started thinking about that. Is Mm -hmm. gender, uh, I I read a wonderful book decades ago. They they came up with a a revised copy of it, but it was the uh, expert's advice, 100 years of the expert's advice to women. And it, Mm. it, outline things like mental health, child rearing, you know, wifely duties, uh, you know, all, you know, our, our work <laughs> it outlined all these things and how over the course of a hundred years, um, the experts advice reflected political and socioeconomic situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, it's world war two. We need you to leave the kid with grandma for daycare and go to work. Oh, it's 1952. Mm-hmm. The soldiers are back. We need you to get home. And so suddenly you're going to be <laughs> harming your child if you put them in daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it was an, I read that as a very young woman, and it was a very enlightening book for me. And I thought of that book when I was reading this definition. Because has it been your experience, and do you see this in your day-to-day work, that our environment our political situation, our, uh, do you see it affecting women's mental health? Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, I think and the, the, the primary example that springs to my mind, I have live and work in Salt Lake city, Utah and the LDS culture, um, Latter-day Saints religion is prominent here. Um, I would say kind of one of the things that I find most frequently um, is female clients coming in with a smile stuck on their face all the time, no matter what she's talking about. So, you know, she can be talking about something really hard that's going on in her life or life of her family, and yet there's this smile there. And I'll ask, I say, you know, you're talking about this really hard thing, but there's this smile there. And I notice that that's there all the time. And she'll say, yeah, yeah, I think that's the church. Um, like, I, you just can't, you just can't not be okay all the time. And so I've just learned that I need to be okay all the time. Um, and, you know, so pulling that apart and helping, you know, helping a client see how does that impact you? Like, to not be able to be real with people or not be able to tell, you know, neighbors or even friends what's really going on with you because that, that just doesn't fit with what we do here. Um, That really impacts a person's mental health. They feel despite being in what, what they and the people around them may view as a loving, caring, tight knit community, they feel incredibly isolated and don't feel able to talk about what's really happening. They can't have flaws, they can't have problems, and they certainly can't have struggles in their marriage or in their parenting approach. Um, You know, time and time again, what I hear 
that they want out of therapy is a non-judgmental place. There's nobody in my life except for maybe, and they maybe list one person, that I can talk to honestly about what's happening and not feel judged or not have that information go to everyone else in my congregation or everyone else in my neighborhood. Or, you know, I've had clients who, um, who hide their tattoos because, you know, if they walk out the door and a neighbor sees the tattoo, you know, that's going to be all the talk at church that week. So, you know, that suppression of who you are and what's really happening with you it's oppressive um, and it really wears on a person's mental health. So I think that's one of the examples that I see often here in my local area. I also had a client, um, part of my intake is, or the intake of the agency I work for is to ask, you know, are there cultural variables that are impacting what you're going through right now? And I would say most clients, um, especially clients of Caucasian descent are kind of like, huh, no, <laughs> you know, I don't really know what to make of that question. Um, but if we, for example, take um, someone who identifies as LGBT um, and has gone through, you know, the last decade of not being allowed to be married and then being allowed to be married if you live in this spot, oh, and then we're going to say that that's, we, we allowed that for three months, but we don't allow it anymore, so you're not married anymore. And then, you know, two years later, the federal government's going to say, okay, you can be married. <laughs> Imagine like, the impact. If you identify as heterosexual, what would it be like to go through that with your relationship? Like it's unfathomable. Or to go on vacation and say, you know, we want to travel from Utah um, to um, somewhere back east, and we're going to pass through five states to get there. Um, and in four of those states, our marriage will not be recognized. So if we were to get in an auto accident, the hospital in that state may not recognize me as the next of kin or the person who can speak for this person. Like as a heterosexual, like that's unfathomable. Of course I can travel freely. Of course this is my, my marital partner. Of course we have all these rights. Um, but the kind of turmoil that that insecurity puts people into is just, well, in many ways, I just keep using the word unfathomable, but, um, you know, it's really hard to imagine. And it does impact our mental health. How do I cope day to day knowing, you know, how, how do I plan for my vacation? How do I, um, how do I ensure that my children are taken care of if my partner passes away? Or, you know, how do I ensure that I'm taken care of if my partner passes away? Those types of things. Um, are going to either exacerbate existing mental health problems or potentially create them, depending on what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Let's, I want to jump back a little bit to the feminist part. Do you have men who mm-hmm. come? And how Definitely. is it for them? Uh-huh. They just, uh, uh, what is it about feminist psychology that might appeal to a man? Because I can picture a lot of men just seeing the title and going, no, you know, just seeing that description and <laughs> yep. going, no. You know, either either yeah. no, that's not for me because I I don't buy that whole thing, or no, that's not for me because clearly feminist means it's for women, so I need to find somebody else. Right, right. Um, I think men are impacted by um, oppressions and privileges as well, um, just like women are, and privilege in many ways can be oppressive. So the expectation that he is always in in charge, always in the know, always the one who can do this, that, or the other thing, um, who's expected to not be the person who stays at home when a child is born, or um, you know, to not be as involved with his children as he may want to be, or um, to the expectation that he'll earn more than his female partner. Um, those types of things, again, also impact men. Um, in many ways, they impact them as pressures, as, you know, here is what you must be, um, which is very similar to what women go through. Here is what you must be. Um, I think it would be easy to say, yeah, but what he's being pressured to be is um, contains more freedom or contains more ability to self-determine. Um, and at the same time, not everybody wants all of that. Um, so I haven't had, I think I've probably only had one 
man ever ask specifically, you know, this is how you identify, how does that work with men? Um, and, you know, basically what I just said is kind of what we talked about. Um, and I think, you know, at the point where, you know, if that's being asked in the first session or if that's being asked five sessions in, again, kind of the relationship that we're building or have built um, in some ways is primary. Like, you know, you you had some time to interact with me. Do you feel like my style is something that will work for you or not? Um, because, you know, there are as many different feminist therapists as there are therapists. So um, just because I identify with this theoretical orientation doesn't mean that that my way of practicing when I'm sitting across from you is going to be the same as another person who identifies in that way. Um, so for me, with number one, I love working with men. Um, and it's always been important to me that my clientele be spread across the gender spectrum um, as well as the sexual orientation and sexuality spectrum um, just because I find that more interesting. Um, and and I think, like I said, the assumption that because men hold more power, they don't have the same kinds of struggles that women would have with these issues of privilege, oppression, power, hierarchy is not true. Well, I, I, I that totally help? agree. Does that answer it? I think that, you know, in, in this day and age when we're seeing so many of those um, previously assumed privileges just kind of fall by the wayside. I would think that must be yeah. pretty hard. I was talking with my son not too long ago, and I said, you know, you get some. We were talking about the hashtag Me Too movement, and I said, well, you know, the the thing the thing that happens is if you've got three quarters of the pie, and you think that's normal, mm-hmm. and then suddenly somebody comes around and says, I'm going to take a quarter of that because you only need a half mm-hmm. of the pie. That's only fair that you get half of a pie. You perceive that as a loss. That's a loss, right? And and it doesn't mean that you're mean-spirited or horrible. It just means that that's something that you have assumed would be yours because culturally it has been yours. A power or a privilege or whatever you want to call it is now taken away. And when you lose something, it's right. a loss. You know, and right. and so I would assume it must be really tough for a lot of guys. Um, you know, as I'm seeing, you know, in, in our culture, a lot of these formerly assumed uh, uh, privileges just kind of fall by the wayside. I mean, you mentioned that the uh, mm-hmm. cultural assumption that the man make more money than his wife, that, you know, I, I mean, in the last, you know, decade or two, those, I, although I'm certain that they still exist uh, plenty, oh, um, but I have seen, I mean, I know so many professional women whose husbands, you know, they're, they're a medical professional and their husband manages their office or they're, uh, you know, um, a, a financial advisor and their husband is the one, you know, so many of those assumptions have fallen by the wayside, but I would imagine mm. that along with that um, falling by the wayside comes that sense of loss. Am I making that up out of whole cloth, mm-hmm. or is that something that you can... No, I think that's absolutely true. Um, talking, I was talking to someone the other day who expressed um, confusion about the Me Too movement and how that might apply um, to him and other males that he knows, and um, and just exactly like you said, like, well, this stuff has been fine until now. Why is it not fine anymore? And, you know, um, this particular person <laughs> well, it was, was never fine, incredibly open. <laughs> right. <laughs> so nobody called me on I it before. So it tea, but it really fine. never was fine. You just didn't get in trouble for it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I've lost the ability to not get in trouble for this. So just yeah. like you yeah, said. Exactly. Like, exactly. Is, yeah, uh, <laughs> I used to I used to do this, and and nobody ever told me it wasn't okay. Um, and, and in fact, you know, he was I probably trained certainly... to do that. You know, he was probably trained mm-hmm. to do it. You know, that it was yeah. a socially yeah. acceptable thing to do. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Exactly. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think, but I, is, I, kind of, I think that's yeah. part of part of the movement that we've seen politically is a, a massive loss of privilege. You know, minority um, people of um, 
racial and ethnic minority are speaking up for their rights at this point. Um, you know, women are speaking up for their rights. People who have been disenfranchised and abused are speaking up. And so we're entering a period in our culture where, you know, quite honestly, you know, people used to be able to walk in to a social situation and know who was higher. And that is flying less and less, you know, um, the lines that we used to say are uncrossable. You know, this person is, a, you know, higher than you in any particular social situation, and therefore you must ABC. Um, those things are being questioned now and challenged and refused. And like you said, so the person who would have walked into that situation as the higher um, is feeling confused and likely angry um, and all of that stemming from a sense of loss of like, huh, what has, you know, what, what did I do wrong? Why, if I lose something, it's because I did something wrong or I have failed in some way. Um, and so, you know, we see a lot of personalization um, about that, you know, well, I didn't cause this or, you know, this isn't my fault. And it's like, no, and it's also not my fault. And I'm not blaming you. I'm saying I want things to change because it's not okay mm. with me. But yeah. it's hard not to personalize that because of the loss. Yeah. And and I would think that uh, from a male standpoint, and, and also, you know, the sense of confusion about what was okay last week is no longer okay today, or at least, you know, uh, perceived as no longer uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, you know. Um, but I yeah. think that there's also, there must be tremendous confusion. There must be tremendous, right. oh, well, how do I go now? You know, I mean, I used to be, I, I mean, it used to be that, you know, if, if she says no, she really means yes. Well, we got over that a few decades mm-hmm. ago. Um, when she says no, mm-hmm. she says no. Um, but now we're doing it with other, other areas, other arenas. Wait a minute. I was raised to believe or culturally, you know, my, the, the, the right. media the culture around me tells me that this behavior is okay. And now all of a sudden all these people are getting in trouble for this behavior. Um, do I have to like carry a clipboard and a contract, you know, and, and get a signature <laughs> right. before I flirt with somebody? I mean, it must be very difficult. Um, I, I, I mean, I think it must be very difficult. And when, when I saw feminist psychology, I thought, you know, maybe that approach for a man would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. But, one, because one of the core tenets of feminist therapy is challenging our assumptions and figuring out where they came from. You know, I, I think personally, I feel like um, we don't do a lot of examination um, of where did I learn this or why do I believe this? Um, you know, we, we are influenced by so many things in our lives. It's not just how we were raised by our family. You know, that is a very key component. Um, you know, how was our religious upbringing? What were the rules in our home? What were the roles for men and women in our home? Um, but then also out out of that small circle, what were the rules in, our, in my society, in my subculture, um, you know, again, in my religion, in my family's workplace. Um, and the fact that we grow up um, in whatever culture, whether we are born and raised in America or whether we immigrated here from somewhere else, we are inundated with um, values and belief systems and ways of looking at things that just become a part of who we are without necessarily being questioned. And so oftentimes we only um, determine that we need to question those things when they become a conflict or a problem. That's generally what leads us to be like, oh, you know, well, where did I learn this? Or, you know, do I really believe this? Um, Mm -hmm. I think just in my own life, when I was younger, I used to read like Cosmopolitan and Elle and, you know, all the fashion magazines. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And there was a point at which um, I recognized that reading them and immersing myself in that world and the perspectives that come from those magazines had me believing things about the world that I didn't think were true. Um, So I found myself, you know, with this kind of expectation, well, everybody has sex on the 
first, second, or third date. Um, and, you know, everybody is earning at a level that they want to earn at and can buy whatever they want to buy. And this amount of money for this product is reasonable and you should be able to afford it. Like those types of assumptions had just become kind of a part of me um, because I was immersed in this culture of the magazines. And I was like, whoa, I don't like that. And so I stopped reading them and I started challenging, like, is everybody having sex on the first day? You know, is everybody able to afford everything? And, and you know, what does that do to my esteem for myself if I'm not meeting those things? And, you know, it sounds very cliche, but my self-esteem got better, <laughs> you know, not holding myself to this standard that was just being depicted. And so I feel like that example just shows how easy it is um, to kind of subconsciously be influenced and end up with views and beliefs um, about ourselves or the world um, without really realizing where they're coming from and without challenging whether they're actually accurate or not. So, so again, you know, I have maybe an LDS woman who is saying, you know, I have to be okay all the time. Um, well, what happens if you're not? Well, people at church start talking about me and they start making comments. Um, okay, you know, how do you feel about that? And, you know, is there anything that you want to do about that? Or, you know, like kind of what are your options? Do you, do you want to, um, do you want to tolerate that? Do you want to challenge that? Um, and if you do want to, either way, it's okay, first of all. Like you do not have to change just because you've noticed something that you don't like. It doesn't mean that you have to change it. You now have a decision because you realize consciously where it's coming from. So you can make a conscious decision about whether you're going to continue to live in that um, or whether you're going to do something to alter it uh, or at least to alter your place in it if you can't alter the actual situation so I, I think feminist therapists want us making decisions at a conscious level ex examining you know how did I get here what factors brought me to this and am I okay with that or not um, and mm -hmm. what do I want to do as a result okay um, okay so if I'm interested in feminist psychology, I'm interested because it means a different approach to things, a more collaborative and less hierarchical approach to therapy. Mm -hmm. But it, it mm -hmm. also means that I'm not looking at whatever problem I'm dealing with just as my particular problem at that particular point in time. I'm looking at it mm -hmm. from a more of a global standpoint of, you know, how did, how did we get here, the sociocultural, if you will, uh, environment that led to this problem. Am I summing that up correctly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. beautifully. What, okay, what else makes feminist psychology unique? What else would influence my decision to seek out a feminist psychologist? Um, one thing that's really key is what's called political analysis. So we've touched on this concept a few times in the podcast so far, but the concept that um, the political is personal and the personal is political. So things that happen in politics are personal to me and things that happen in my life can influence politics. So there, I, there's about a million examples of this. Um, let's, Let's take the current immigration um, issue um, that um, anyone who crosses our border um, without like a whole bunch of prearranged papers um, is currently being arrested. And if they have children with them, those children are being taken from them because they can't go to the adult detention center where their parents are being sent. That is very personal. <laughs> there is nothing more personal. Um, and it is political. It is 100% political. This policy is a policy of the administration. Um, it was not there in the previous administration, and it may not be there later in this one. So, so something that is political has a true and real and life-impacting effect on an individual. Um, and then, you know, I am an American citizen. Am I impacted by that? And what does that do? Um, and what do I want to do about it? 
Um, is that impacting me? So I may have a client come in who um, whose status is not 100% what the government wants it to be, let's say. Um, you know, that client is suddenly living with an incredible amount of fear that's very different than what they were living with two years ago. So <clears throat> that is going to, I, I mean, I can't even imagine that not impacting a person's mental health and their ability to function day to day. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to spiral out of control or into a giant depression or anything, but it is an enormous stressor. Um, even if that person's status is secure, they may know somebody or love somebody whose status is not secure, um, or they may be in, impacted. I don't have anybody of, of um, undocumented status in my life, and yet as a human being, I'm torn apart by this policy. I'm not okay that my government says it represents me and is doing this. So that's impacting my mental health. That's impacting my um, choices day to day, what I do with my life, and how I speak out. So political analysis is a huge piece of feminist therapy, not only in the therapy room, in helping clients see, you know, how does this, how is this, what's going on in the world impact me, and is that adding to my trouble, uh, but also as an individual and therapist, feminist therapy as a framework puts a burden on me as a human being and a feminist therapist to do something about the problem. Um, there was a phrase that I heard many times from one of my mentors in grad school that said, if we are not doing something to change the larger situation that is causing distress to our clients, then we're just making money off of other people's pain. So like, that puts a, a burden on me to do something about the systems that cause suffering. Um, and I think that's radically different than other theoretical orientations that are all about just what happens in the therapy room. It's not radically different, however, than the national social work ethical standards, which actually puts the same burden on social workers. So. Yeah. Well, and uh, psychologists are also, uh, um, uh, there's the discussion and the, the, about, you know, the psychologist's role uh, in the, the uh, greater environment, if you will. And, and like mm -hmm. most things, some, some people think it's, no, my job is to work one-on-one -on -one with this person. And some of them think, no, my job is to change the world uh, in order to mm -hmm. work one-on-one. -on -one. And, you know, so that's a, a philosophical thing. So, okay, so how do I find out? If I say I'm looking for a psychologist and mm -hmm. I've got a particular problem or set of problems and I think it would uh, behoove me to discuss those with somebody to help me work them out, um, and I like the idea of the feminist approach. How do I find a feminist psychologist? I mean, do you just Google that's feminist a, psychologist? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, or therapist, because um, people with um, any number of degrees could fall under this um, orientation. I'm a clinical mental health counselor. There's also marriage and family therapists. There's social workers. Um, and like you said, there's psychologists as well. So, um, you know, many different um, degrees would potentially meet that need. Um, there's a national organization known as the Association for Women in Psychology. Um, I don't know that they have a therapist directory, though. Um, here in Utah, we have a Utah branch of Association for Women in Psychology. Um, there is a feminist group known as Women in Private Practice um, in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, they actually have a resource directory of therapists. And the, I would say the vast majority, if not all, therapists who are members of that group identify as feminist. Um, but again, kind of as a lay person, you wouldn't necessarily know, oh, I'll go to Women in Private Practice's website and then find a bunch of feminist therapists. So unfortunately, there isn't like, you know, a marker or, um, a, you know, a way that um, a person nationwide might find this. Um, I would say kind of networking, you know, asking around for someone who knows someone who practices um, feminist therapy. Um, as we said, talked about earlier in the podcast, um, some people are going to 
you know, kind of loud and proud announce that in their profile, um, and some are not. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ones who aren't aren't going to practice in that way. Um, I think generally they're looking to not turn off people who would be turned off by that um, terminology. Um, for me, it's such an integral part of who I am that I'm like, if they're turned off by that terminology, they may not like me to begin with. So, um, but that's not necessarily every one of us. So, um, so yeah, I wish that there was some nice national directory I could direct you to. Um, but I would say ask, um, you know, um, you can, if if you know of a feminist organization, like, you know, the YWCA nationwide is often run on feminist principles. Um, you know, you may ask them if they know of any feminist therapists. Um, so that might be a good local resource for anywhere. Um, again, the Association for Women in Psychology may or may not be able to direct you in your area. Um, there are a lot of local chapters of that, um, or kind of like you said, Google feminist therapist and, you know, see, you know, that would probably help pop up the people who are blatantly identifying in that way. So, well, and I know or that come a lot see of me times, if you live in Salt Lake. This, <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of times um, we, um, today, the way things are, um, when we need to f- seek a medical specialist or a therapist, um, we call our insurance companies because certain people mm-hmm. are so affiliated with our company, and if we don't go to them, then the insurance isn't going to pay for it and whatever. So, um, right. you know, that that's something that, that we need to contend with as well. And if your insurance company doesn't offer any feminist psychologists as members, then, you know, see if you can complain about that and you know, who who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've become a little jaded, so I've, be, I've begun to think that, you know, no. <laughs> the, the world has developed systems, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm a child of, of you know, a, a more activist period, and so I have it deep in my little brain that if we all get out there and protest, things are going to change, but I have to confess, I have to confess that in the last few years, I've been thinking, oh my God, no, it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. We have bureaucracies right. that are not going to change no matter what. And we seem to have a, a generation of of people who seem to think that's just fine. And, you know, I mean, I'm I'm still ready to go, you know, march on D.C. And I, I just have a really hard time with it. <laughs> so, well, and when we talk so, about systems like that, like there is an insurance commission, there's supposed to be an insurance commission in every state. Um, it's a government uh-huh. organization that is for consumer advocacy within the insurance industry. So their services would be free. They're supposed to be on your side as the consumer as opposed to the insurance's side. Um, and I've seen mm-hmm. people get amazing results through a complaint to their local insurance commission. So so there well, is a system you can hopefully have work for you. Government agency that oversees the bureaucracy that you're dealing with, but sometimes the bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> are the government agency, and apparently they are now God. You know, I mean, I don't uh, don't get me started. Robin, right, you and so that assumes privilege and the time to do that kind of work. So. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I. I, I had a, an experience where I got billed for going across a toll bridge. The bill was wrong. It was $12 wrong. I emailed. I didn't get a response. I telephoned, and I was on the phone for an hour, and finally I went, you know what? $12 it is, guys. $12. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, Because we, we need access to resources to even do this stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, well, Robin, thank you so much for explaining feminist therapy to me. I really appreciate it, and uh, I consider myself a feminist, and so now I know what... And I do have a Psychology Today profile, so... Oh, okay, so Psychology Today profile. Great. Thank you so very much, Robin. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.